All right, if you've got a Bible, let's turn, if we can, to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 11 is where we're going to be this morning, Mark chapter 11. I just want to encourage you, just as we get into the preaching part of today's uh, meeting, please let's not lose the heart of what God is still and wants to do here. I really feel God is wanting to touch people this morning. I feel like God is wanting to heal people. I, um, I just have this a, a picture of the, the double-edged sword of the Word of God coming out of Jesus' mouth, and I felt like it was happening during worship, um, that Jesus was preaching the Word to us during worship. And I trust that's going to continue as we, as we get into the Word today. I trust the Word would be preaching and we would understand the Word, but it would be worship to us as well. That this is not just the preaching part. This can be the ministry part. This can be the worship part too. So continue to keep your hearts open. I really believe God is wanting to minister. And can I say, ministry doesn't only happen at uh, 10 minutes as, at the last 10 minutes of the service. Ministry doesn't only happen as we call people forward and lay hands on them. Ministry happens as the word of God is being preached. And so if God is touching your heart today, open it up, receive what he's saying to you. Uh, and let's trust for uh, Jesus just to be exalted in a powerful way this morning. Mark chapter 11 is where we're going to be. On Wednesday, uh, Debs and I went to a very fancy garden party at the Chicago History Museum as, uh, by personal invitation of the hosts, who are very dear and close friends of ours. And uh, we were hobnobbing with some pretty kind of fancy folks, some really impressive people, people that we ordinarily wouldn't hang around with, people that typically intimidate me. Uh, until I turned around and saw Debs standing around uh, with a group of very kind of significant dignitaries, and she had them belly laughing within minutes, as only, as only Debs is, is able to do. But there was a moment in that time at the, at the garden party where, Deb, where Debs and I were alone, and we were sipping on our drinks, and someone who we found out later kind of knows everyone came over to us, and she asked us this question, who are you? Now, I know what she was asking. She wasn't asking what are, what are your, our names. She was asking, how do we fit in this context of this fancy garden party? And, and I knew she was doing that. And so I gave her the answer she wasn't looking for. And I said, my name is Steve, and this is my wife, Deborah. And it was met with a little bit of awkward silence as she was trying to figure out, well, no, that's not really what I was asking. So she asked again, who are you? And I thought, okay, how do I answer this one? And I paused for a moment, and then I said, we are very dear and close friends of the hosts. And suddenly, she was, ah, oh, they are incredible people, aren't they? And in that instant, as we mentioned the names of the hosts of the garden party, we were suddenly accepted. And I want you to just uh, think about that for a moment, because we're going to return to that halfway through the sermon but this is the statement that I want us to realize, and I use that illustration to, to say this. Words can have great power, but their power is dependent upon the one in whose name we speak. Words can have great power, but their power is dependent on the name, uh, on the one in whose name that we speak. We've only got two more Sundays left after this Sunday in our series through Mark. It's a series that we've entitled Step Into God's Story. It's a series in which we are kind of discovering what it looks like to follow Jesus, what it looks like to live in such a way that, in a way that he typically would if he were you or if he were me. And I don't know about you, but I have absolutely 
loved being involved in this series. I think I say that at the end of every single series, but, but this one feels in particular like it's just been kind of the word of the Lord for us in this particular season. And so what we're going to do today, as we, I, I have typically done when I've been preaching in this series, is we're going to tackle this passage, we're going to read part of it, make some comments along the way, and then at the end we're going to apply some application. So we're going to start in verse 11. Mark chapter 11, verse 11. You can follow on your phones or on your Bibles, or the text will be on the screen behind me. And Mark chapter 11, verse 11 starts with these words, Jesus entered Jerusalem. Jesus entered Jerusalem. Up until now, Mark's gospel has been written at a frenetic pace. Uh, 42 times up until now, Mark uses words like immediately and suddenly and at once to describe how Jesus lived, to describe what it was like for the disciples to follow a man who was filled with the passion and the burning desire to do what God had asked him to do. But now in Mark chapter 11, things slow down. And over the next third of Mark's gospel, from chapter 11 through to the end of the book, uh, Mark chapter 16, all of the events that we are about to encounter happen in Jerusalem and take place over a seven-day period leading up to Jesus' death and his resurrection. And it begins with Jesus returning to the city of Jerusalem. Now, 200 years earlier, there was a Jewish uh, a warrior, a Jewish military leader by the name of Judas Maccabeus who had defeated the heirs of Alexander the Great, who had oppressed the nation of Israel. And he had defeated them and uh, uh, freed Israel from their oppressive rule. And when Judas Maccabeus rode back into Jerusalem, he did so to much fanfare from the crowds. In fact, historians tell us that the people welcomed him this way, carrying green palm branches and sticks, decorated with ivy, they, parade, they sang grateful praises to him. In fact, Judas Maccabeus' victory was so significant in the history of Israel that for a moment they thought that he was the coming Messiah that had been promised in the Scriptures. But now, 200 years later, it is Jesus who is riding into Jerusalem. And the people anticipate the arrival of their promised king. And they, what they do is they, is they throw their cloaks onto the road. And in doing so, they make the, an equivalent of a modern-day red carpet. And when they ran out of cloaks, they went and chopped down tree branches and turned that red carpet green. They were celebrating. They were singing uh, uh, songs from the Psalms. Psalm 118, they, they, they began to speak the words of Psalm 118. Hosanna, they said. Lord, save us is what that means, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they were celebrating the arrival of their new king. But like we have seen over the last few weeks, Jesus is not the king that everyone had expected or anticipated. Now, Mark's gospel is written both to Jewish and also Roman readers, and the Roman readers of Mark's gospel would have understood this military parade better than anyone. In 46 BC, Julius Caesar rode back into Rome, and it's recorded that there was this magnificent parade for this returning uh, uh, victorious king. And behind uh, Caesar, on that particular sort of parade, there were thousands of soldiers who brought back the spoils of war. It's recorded that they handed out 2,000 tons 
of silver and gold to the cheering crowds. But friends, Jesus is altogether a different king. He does things God's way. You see, unlike Julius Caesar and unlike Judas Maccabeus, Jesus refused to return with a show of power, and he carries no weapon in his hand. His weapon is that double-edged sword that comes out of his mouth, and, and he doesn't ride on a mighty war horse, but rather on a donkey that no one has ever ridden. You see, his reliance and his dependence is on the power of God and on the power of heaven rather than trusting in the strength that the world offers. And the crowds were singing words from Psalm 118, but he embodied them. He lived it out. In fact, verse 8 is exactly how Jesus lived. It says, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. Jesus is an altogether different kind of king. He does things God's way, and he also does things using God's resources. Caesar distributed incredible wealth to the crowds who were there, but Jesus doesn't even own the donkey on which he is riding. It was borrowed, just like the manger was borrowed in which Jesus was born, and the boat on which he preached, and the tomb in which he will soon be laid, all borrowed, but despite the fact that Jesus didn't have the world's riches in his hands, he had access to the endless wealth of heaven in order to fulfill his Father's will. He's an altogether different king. He, he does things God's way, and he uses God's resources, and he also responds to God's perfect timing. When Judas Maccabeus arrived in Jerusalem, the first thing he did was he went to the temple and he purged the temple of all the pagan gods. But look at verse 11. Look at what Jesus does in contrast. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Zechariah chapter 9 prophesies this great king that is gonna return and set Israel free. And it talks about this king who is righteous and victorious. But then Zechariah chapter nine adds that he, is also, he also will be lowly riding on a donkey. And friends, we have to understand that, that Jesus's power is found in weakness. Jesus's majesty is displayed through his meekness. And when we read verses like that, it reminds me of this vision that John, the Apostle John had when he was exiled to the island of Patmos. He has this incredible vision of the throne room of God. And in Revelation chapter 5, he sees this amazing vision of heaven. And John begins to weep because at first he thinks there is no one worthy to execute on the plans of the Father. And in Revelation chapter five, this, this vision continues where an angel taps John on the, soul, uh, on the shoulder and he says, don't weep because there is one who is worthy, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so John gets up and he turns around hoping to see a lion. And what does he see in verse six? He sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. Friends, Jesus is the embodiment of what seemed to be contrasts, infinite justice, but also infinite grace. The transcendent loftiness, but also utter lowliness. He's the embodiment of absolute glory, 
but also complete humility. He's the, he's the embodiment of majesty and meekness, sovereignty, but yet submitting his entire life to the Father, all sufficient, yet entirely trusting on God. He's the rock on which we stand, and he's also the pearl of great price for which we give up everything. He's the lion, and he's the lamb. And friends, that's why the, the cheering crowds Four days later, begin to cry, crucify him, because they were horrified to realize that Jesus' kingdom currency was not strength, but weakness by worldly standards. It was not clutching tightly onto human wealth, but opening up his hands and trusting in God's, despite the fact that he had nothing. It was not impatient human action but rather patiently waiting for God's perfect timing. It was not self-reliance, but reliance on the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And it was not an army of soldiers who followed him, but it was a band of ordinary men and women who were being shaped by God and would ultimately shape the world. And I think this is an essential time for us just to pause for a moment and just recognize the fact that if we are called to follow Jesus, if we are called to live in such a way that he would, if he were you or me, that we have to live in this way. It means that we have to do things God's way by taking refuge and trusting him rather than relying on and trusting in the things of the world. That we have to uh, lean into the resources of heaven rather than being stopped by the limitations of what we see or whatever is in front of us or what, what the limitations of what we have in our hand. It, it means not turning God's blessing in on ourselves through a self-centered refusal to bless others. And it means leaning into and relying upon the power of the Holy Spirit. When Judas Maccabeus returned to Jerusalem, the first thing he did was he purged the temple in Jerusalem of all pagan statues and all the Gentiles who were worshiping them. Jesus came to purge the temple too, but not from the nations. He came to purge the temple for the nations. And that's why the cries of Hosanna turned out to be cries of crucify him. The Israelites had expected this Messiah to return and for the Messiah to join their side, only for them to realize that Jesus was calling them to repent and to join his side. And if you've been part of listening to the series at all, you probably would have picked up time and time again that the call that Jesus has, the question Jesus is asking, the, the statement Jesus is making is not, how can I join your story or what can I do for you? But the question Jesus is saying to each and every one of us is, will you lay down your life? Will you pick up your cross? And would you come and follow me? Verse 12, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. So Jerusalem was packed because of the Passover festival. And so Jesus and his disciples had decided to stay a couple of miles outside of town in this little town called Bethany. Verse 13, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went, out to, fi he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. 
And then he said to this tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say this. Bless you. There are times when, as a family, we get together and we, we order food. And it's a wonderful time when we order food, when each meal comes individually wrapped and individually served, because everyone has their own individual kind of meal. But chaos ensues whenever we order sushi, because sushi generally comes on this big platter. And there are some who shall remain nameless in our family who uh, start to get what is known as food anxiety. They start to stress and worry about missing out. And so they start grabbing and filling up their plates before we've had any of the meal. And the same person who shall remain nameless also seems to struggle with what we know as being hangry. You know what that is? When you, you, you're hungry and so you start to display kind of, you start to get angry because you are hungry. And the question has to be asked in this instance whether Jesus was being hangry. I mean, here he is. What he does is he rebukes a fig tree for not producing fruit, although it was not the season for fruit to be produced. Now, I want to be clear. I'm no agronomist, and I'm no gardener, and I don't want to be a gardener. But I did take some time this week to do some research on the internet to learn about fig trees. And apparently, it is true that fig trees have two crops, or they produce two kinds of fruit throughout the year. There's the, the figs that we all know and love, those figs that are juicy and ripe and sliced and served with brie or other French cheeses, or cheeses of any kind, to be honest. And, and maybe it's not the figs that we know and love, maybe it's the cheese that we know and love, and the figs are just there. But all that to say is that's the one kind of fruit that the fig tree produces. But there's a second kind of fruit, and that's, this, this is the kind of fruit that Jesus was referring to. That when the leaves come out in spring, there are also these little first fruits that, that are begin, begin to be produced that is a foreshadow or a foretaste of what is about to come later in the year. And Jesus goes up to this tree and he realizes that there's no fruit, even though the tree is in full bloom with leaves. Friends, Jesus is not hangry. This is a, this is a parable. This is a parable that is warning about the dangers of hollow religion. This is a parable about the outward displays of righteousness and worship to God without the lack of inner fruitfulness that comes as a, a, a consequence of being in intimate relationship with God. This is the danger of, this is a parable about the danger of looking impressive and being busy only for that to honestly be just a facade over the lack of closeness and the lack of acknowledging God's presence with us. The fig tree is actually a foreshadow of what's about to happen. And so let's read verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him 
because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Friends, this is not your Mr. Rogers Jesus. This is Jesus who went to the temple and looked around and realized what was happening and goes back to Bethany and spends a night probably praying and preparing and considering what he's about to do. And John's gospel tells us that he makes a whip in anticipation of him driving out those who who had filled the temple. And if this offends us, friends, we've got to realize that righteous anger is the appropriate response to something or someone that sinfully opposes God's will and God's way. Now, in the temple courts, the outermost court was called the court of the nations. And history tells us that it could probably hold up to 75,000 people. And it was the area where the Jews had to pass through in order to get into the inner courts where sacrifices were offered and sacrifices were made on their behalf. And so in this court of the nations, that's where the merchants and the money changers had set up shop. The money changers were there to ensure that there was an exchange of pagan money into Jewish money because pagan money carried the symbol of idols. But they did so at exorbitant rates and took advantage of people. And the merchants were there there selling animals for sacrifices, but they were the only shop in town that was offering a guaranteed certificate that the animal was pure. And Mark actually mentions his disgust of this. If you notice what Mark mentions is, is speaks about the doves who were sold. The doves was the doves were the were the, the cheapest animal that the poorest of the poor could buy. And he's making the point that even they were being taken advantage of. Historians tell us that on one Passover weekend, up to two hundred and fifty thousand lambs were sold to offer as sacrifices. Think about the noise. Think about how chaotic the court of the nations was. Debs loves to watch farming shows. And she watches these shows that are set in England with rolling green hills and sheep producing lambs. And they follow the story of these lambs as they become older and eventually sold in markets. And when they go to the market, it's chaotic and it's crazy. But there's nowhere near 250,000 lambs. I want you to to try and, and picture the scale of what is taking place here. Tens of thousands of people in the courtyard. Hundreds of thousands of different kinds of animals. Think of the noise. Think of the shouting. Think of the bleating of sheep. And friends, this was meant to be the place where the Jews prayed for the nations of the world. This was meant to be the place where Gentiles found and discovered the God of the universe. And driving out the money changers and the merchants, Jesus wasn't purging the temple of foreigners, but he was preparing the temple for foreigners. You see, this was uh, Jesus hinting at the sacrificial system that was very soon, through his death on the cross, about to be abolished. Because when Jesus was on the cross and he cried out his last and gave up his final breath, the the Bible tells us that that, that in that temple, 
The curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the court was torn in two from top to bottom, meaning that the temple and sacrificial system became obsolete. We now find Jesus and relationship with God through faith in Him, trusting in who He is and what He has done on the cross. And what Jesus does is he quotes Isaiah chapter 56 to justify his righteous anger of driving out these merchants and money changers. And Isaiah 56 verse 1 starts with this, my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. The righteousness of God has been revealed through Jesus Christ. And Isaiah goes on in verse 3 to describe those who at times feel furthest away from God. He says this, let no foreigner or outsider who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree or I am only damaged goods. Friends, you and I here who follow Jesus, who are part of this community at times feel like outsiders because of things we've done. And at times, you and I feel like eunuchs who, who we consider ourselves damaged goods because of perhaps of things that have happened to us. And if we've got to fight the feeling of, of feeling outsiders, how much more is it true of those outside in the world? Friends, I want to encourage us. We need to remove the, the no entry signs that might be on our hearts and make it clear that this is a place where people can encounter the living God to make it clear to the world that this is a place where people can surrender their lives and be transformed in an instant as they put their faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done. There is no one too far from the gospel. There is no one who's, who, 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 where the Lord's arm is too short or not powerful enough to rescue and transform and save. It's no wonder in verse 18 that the religious leaders were shocked and were ready to kill him. They couldn't adjust to the reality of God's kingdom that Jesus was ushering in. A kingdom where God's power is perfected in the midst of human weakness. That verse hit me about three years ago. Just think about that. God's power, 2 Corinthians, God's power, the power of the almighty God who spoke the world into, being, into existence, that power is made perfect in the midst of human weakness. It blows my mind. And the kind of kingdom that Jesus is ushering in is where characteristics like generosity and service and compassion and humility, the, the, the kind of kingdom God is ushering in is where those characteristics develop as a, as a consequence of a relationship with him because our feet are rooted in the kingdom of God rather than us being a Christmas tree that's rooted in nothing, where ornaments are added on and it looks impressive for a while, but eventually withers and dies. Now what Jesus does, and we're gonna end with this, is suddenly Jesus' teaching takes a turn and he starts to apply everything that has just happened to every one of us. Look at verse 19. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city in the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered, and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you have cursed has withered. 
Now, from verse 22 to verse 25 are probably some of the most challenging verses in Scripture. But I want us to read them and realize that Jesus is speaking to each one of us. There's the word anyone that we're going to soon encounter. And in the Greek and in the Hebrew and in English and any other language in the world, anyone means anyone. It means every one of us. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, If you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Jesus is not just using the the withered fig tree as a teaching illustration to talk about the dangers of external practices of worship without the internal production of fruit. But he's also talking about our hearts Responding to God and the power of faith-filled prayer. And can I just pause for a moment and say, friends, every time we try and, and get away from prayer, it keeps coming back and hitting us in the face. This is the theme for this year for Anthem Church. God is reminding us again and again and again about the power of prayer. I chose the wrong words there a few seconds ago. It made it appear like we were trying to run away from prayer, which is not what we're trying to do. I'm trying to just communicate that God is speaking to us about the power of prayer. Now, remember that fancy garden party that I spoke of a few moments ago? Remember what I said about the, the power of words, but words carry a, a power dependent on, on the one in whose name that we speak? Now, now that's where this becomes relevant because in Mark's gospel so far, we've heard and learned that when Jesus commanded people to be clean and commanded demons to go, sickness and demons were powerless to resist. And when Jesus told a cripple to get up or a crippled man to stretch out his hand, their dysfunctional bodies immediately fell into line. And when Jesus blessed five loaves and two fish, they jumped to attention and were able to feed 5,000. It's no wonder that all Peter wanted was to hear the word of Jesus say, come, because he knew that was enough for him to be able to walk on water. And friends, this is the context for this withered tree parable. Jesus is telling his disciples, and he's telling us that this is how the kingdom of God advances here on earth. We have been given authority in Jesus' name to command God's kingdom to come as it already is in heaven. We've been given that name, the name that is above all authority. And so as God makes his will known to us, we begin to declare that his will would come and be manifest in the name of Jesus. I want to try and make this accessible to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I referenced it a few moments ago. Paul writes, my power, Jesus speaking to him, my power is made perfect in weakness. There's no inherent power in weakness. There is power, though, when we set aside what we trust in regarding human strength, because only then are we able to fully trust in God. 
And that's the two sides of the, of the currency of God's kingdom. We set aside our trust in the things of this world, and we fully trust in what God has said and what God is able to do. And so we stop looking at the obstacles that are in front of us and being intimidated by them and saying, because I don't have this, I can't do what God says he wants to do. Instead, we start to look at the obstacles and hold them up in the light of who God is and who God says and what God says he will do. And there we say, in Jesus' name, I am able to do what he has commanded. But we read these verses and we try to qualify them, don't we? We try to say, oh, that's for them, the disciples, and that's for back then when Jesus was walking with them. But friends, yes, we need to qualify them, and I'm going to end by sharing three things that we need to be aware of to see these verses come to pass. But friends, we cannot dismiss them and say, this is not how we are called to live. Firstly, and we nearly finished, Jesus' name is not some magic incantation that gets us whatever we want whenever we want it. Jesus' name is not some magic incantation that gets us whatever we want, whenever we want it. No, we've been given the authority of Jesus' name to advance his kingdom cause here on earth. So we can pray, and we can ask, and we can trust God, for example, for a 20% increase at our work. But we can't just release it in Jesus' name. Unless God has made it very clear that that's specifically how he wants his kingdom to advance. But we can, in Jesus' name, release peace where there is brokenness. And we can, in Jesus' name, release healing where there is sickness. And salvation where there is separation from God. And truth where there is deceit. Because we know that to be God's will and the way through which his kingdom advances. Daniel shared about incredible things that happened at the Europe Equip. And on the Friday night, the last evening, there was a time of ministry. And I want to share a story of something that, not that I was involved in advancing God's kingdom, but that I was involved in, in receiving the advance of God's kingdom. We were worshiping. And there was a prophecy over prof after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy where God spoke directly to me. Have you been in those meetings where it feels like literally everyone has left and it's you and God standing alone and you are receiving confirmation after confirmation that God wanted to, wants to do something in your heart? That was me. Typically after ministry, Fred invites the leaders to come forward to minister. And so I boldly walked forward. He thought I was there to pray. And I told him, no, I'm here to receive what God wants to give me. And a friend stood with me for probably half an hour and just simply prayed the name of Jesus over me for 30 minutes. He just kept saying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And I wept and wept and wept and things were broken off and I was released into a greater degree of freedom. Can I fully articulate everything that happened? No. But I know that God spoke and it was his will to advance his kingdom in my heart in this way, and I responded. And friends, that's what I'm talking about. When we watch and we listen to what God is saying. Secondly, and I'm nearly finished, our ability to pray 
in Jesus' name with God's authority is directly linked to our willingness to submit to God's authority. Our willingness to pray in Jesus' name with God's authority is directly linked to our willingness to submit to God's authority. Friends, only if we, if, if we make Jesus Lord have we any authority to speak powerful words in his name. And this is where the subject of forgiveness comes in. And we don't have time to tackle this by any means. But I want to say, friends, when we hold unforgiveness towards others, it interrupts our intimacy with God. When we hold unforgiveness towards others, often it's something, it's the very, it's the only thing we can think about. And it interrupts intimacy with God. When, when I apologize to Debs or she to me, more so when I apologize to Debs for, for things that I have done wrong, it's not me coming with fresh information that restores us. Because we both know what I did. It's me coming with vulnerability and humility and tenderness of heart that restores the relationship. And friends, it's the same with repentance with God. God knows what we've done. And it's not us acknowledging those things, but it's us coming to God with tenderness and vulnerability and humility that restores that closeness and intimacy, us with God and us with others. So I say, let's not shy away from repentance and let's be quick to apologize. And by God's grace, Let's be even quicker to forgive. And then lastly, our prayers on earth only carry as much authority as we believe they carry in heaven. Our prayers on earth only carry as much authority as we believe they carry in heaven. Jesus says, have faith in God. Friends, faith is not something that we have to work up. Faith is simply holding on to God's faithfulness. Faith is the conviction that God is faithful to do what he said he would do. And he goes on to say, and do not doubt. To doubt in the Greek literally means to have two options. How often do we respond to what God is calling us to do only for us to have a backup plan, just in case God doesn't come through? Have faith in God and do not doubt. 17th century Puritan John Owen says this, our greatest hindrance in the Christian life is not our lack of effort, but our lack of acquaintedness with our privileges. And I want to offer these things to you, this passage to you, as something we need to realize is ours as followers of Jesus. That we can command God's kingdom to come in Jesus' name when we realize that his name is not just some magic incantation for us to get what we want. And when we remember to pray in Jesus' name with God's authority directly linked to our willingness to submit to his authority. And when we remember that our prayers on earth carry as much authority as we believe they carry in heaven. I wonder if I could ask Daniel and and Jinty, just to come up. And we're gonna just take a moment to respond. I just uh, do believe that, that God wants to not just speak to us from his word, but release his power and his presence upon us to break things off of us, to, for us to trust for his kingdom to come in and through our hearts this morning. So perhaps I could invite you to close your eyes 
You don't have to, but it's often a posture that allows us just to be free of distraction. And we're just gonna ask the Holy Spirit to come and to minister by the grace of God the things that He wants to touch and change within us. And so Lord, we, we, before we go any further, we wanna ask in Jesus' name, Lord, we know that You are present. We know that You are here. We know that You wanna minister life and truth and grace and liberty and freedom and, and wholeness and healing, peace, joy, righteousness in the Holy Spirit, Lord, is, is what you say is the kingdom of God. And we want the kingdom of God to come this morning. Maybe there's a situation that you know of or a situation that you are currently facing in your marriage, in a relationship that you're currently in or with your family. Maybe a situation at work where you know the kingdom of God is not being manifest. I trust that just as the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the early church so that we could be witnesses of God's kingdom, I want to ask Heavenly Father for those who find themselves in those situations where, where your kingdom is not manifest in those relationships, I ask, Holy Spirit, would you pour yourself out upon them? I pray that you would give them the boldness to release righteousness and peace and joy into those situations. ask you right now if that's if that's you if you know of a lack of peace in a relationship a lack of wholeness I'm going to ask you right where you are seated just to begin to pray and release in Jesus name his peace and his wholeness I don't need to be a prophet to know that there are people here who are probably facing really difficult work situations I want to encourage you right now in the name of Jesus just to release the peace of God by the authority you have in Jesus' name. Where marriages are struggling, you, by the authority you have, I want to ask you, begin to release the love of God, the power of healing, of broken hearts. Begin to release that. Begin to pray just for a moment or two over your marriages relationships and friendships.